want to start this intro by stipulating without reservation that the Friendly Fire podcast is against Hitler. Hitler comes up a lot in conversation these days, and although we feel it should be obvious we are 100% against Hitler, we still want to reassure you that, yes, we are opposed to Hitler. People want to hear clear denunciations of Hitler because, despite what you may have said and or done your whole life up to this point, if you are not current on your public Hitler hating, you may have slid into Hitler liking while no one was watching, and now are at least as bad as Hitler if not worse. So, we are against Hitler. Whew, thank goodness we got that out of the way. For at least the next hour, you can be certain about where we stand. It's possible by the time this show airs that we all have become acolytes of Hitler, so be sure to check in with us on social media and interrogate us about our politics. And then feel free to ignore what we say and make your own determination about where we stand on Hitler. I suggest you start with Adam. Most of my life, people were quick to reassure themselves that Hitler was an aberration. Again and again, he was explained away as an accident of time and place. It couldn't have happened before and could never happen again. We were confident, above all else, that democracy was sturdy. But it turns out it's fairly easy to convince the majority of people they're actually a persecuted minority. In fact, I bet everyone listening to this show right now regards themselves in some way or another as a disenfranchised outsider. Right? I mean, be honest. It takes almost nothing to convince a person that they're just trying to defend themselves. Don't you feel like you're in immediate danger these days? And that danger kind of justifies you abandoning the normal rules of civil society in order to fight the oppressors who are ganging up on you? Do you not have ample proof that your enemies mean you harm? That they are right this minute conspiring to overthrow the lawful order and imprison your friends and destroy your lives? And that almost any behavior, no matter how violent or repugnant, would be excused in light of this assault? Well, so it no longer feels like an academic exercise to debate whether it could happen in America. For the record, some of our audience thinks Trump is Hitler. A smaller subset of our listeners think Hillary Clinton is Hitler. We definitely have listeners in other countries who have their own maybe Hitlers to worry about. I personally think Elmo is Hitler and that he ruined Sesame Street. But it's too easy to draw parallels and make rueful cracks, and if we're given to hyperbole, accuse Trump and Elmo and Hillary and all veterans and active duty soldiers and cops, firemen... Antifa, Arkansas real estate developers and frat boys and white women and nine-tenths of East Anchorage High School's class of 86 as uh, of all being Hitlers. And me sitting here saying I don't think that they are Hitlers or even comparable to Hitler, really. And we should not be complacent, but also not lean too heavily on Hitler similes to describe what's happening. Well, I too had better remind you at this point that I personally repudiate Hitler. These are dangerous times. Downfall recounts the final days of actual Hitler and his closest advisors as they reckon with the prospect, having lost the war a long time before, that they are about to face the vengeful wrath they fear most. The war in Russia was bungled and lost back in the winter of 42, and to the west, America was just churning out airplanes and tanks to cover the earth, and never ran out of gasoline, and enjoyed fighting, frankly. The generals know all that, and yet still they cannot defy Hitler, they cannot abandon him, they can only plead with him to look again at the maps as he descends into hallucinatory madness. No one can challenge him, even as artillery shells rain in the garden. We feel their panic and frustration, their human emotion. We see the sweat pouring down their faces as Hitler screams about divisions of troops that long before were vaporized into a pink mist 
by the unmitigated Russian vengeance that we cannot imagine without nausea. There are no heroes here. History will condemn these people for as long as humans keep records and study their past. And yet it does us some good to see them as people, to not blithely abase them as monsters and thereby remove them from the human family. It is astonishing and controversial that Hitler is depicted as he probably was, a sad, broken abuser, still alternately screaming and then gently cooing at his family even as the cops pound on the door as the fire he set starts to engulf their home. Can you feel sorry for him? Even as you hate him and want him dead? We study this era so avidly because we seek an answer to what used to be, even so recently as 2004, a tantalizing hypothetical question. What would I do? What would you? Watching Magda Goebbels coldly administer cyanide capsules to her six angelic children is pathetic. It's pitiable, it's degenerate, it's foul. It's also true, both documented and recognizable as the behavior of someone convinced of their own righteousness. Could it happen today? Well, how much time do I have? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that this isn't exactly a pork chop movie. It's pretty tough to watch. And in humanizing the top Nazis, it sparked an inevitable debate. This story came to us via Traudl Junge, Hitler's secretary and our eyewitness who lived until 2002. Is there redemption for her? For the millions complicit in the crimes? Does bringing us this story earn some absolution? That question is in the air of this film for its entire runtime, just like the never-mentioned Holocaust. Sleep tight, children. Today on Friendly Fire, we review 2004's Downfall. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where the hosts never went to any academy, but we conquered more than 40 films on our own. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Whoa, rough film. This is not going to be the scale that uh, that I set up at the end when it comes time to review, but I almost want to rate this film on a scale of one to five fires on the plains. <laughs> like in terms of bleakness this is definitely a movie that falls into the category of movies you need to see right this is a this adam and i were just discussing this uh, before the show like there are things in life that you have a responsibility to do that aren't that aren't fun all the time but are necessary somewhat it's the eating your peas of war movies well or or, yeah, I mean, you watch a movie like this and you're going to understand a lot of war movies in a different way. You watch a movie like this, you're going to understand. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like Paradise Now, the movie we just watched. You don't come away from it feeling like that was a good pork chop. Yeah. You know, you walk away wondering how how you ended up empathizing with people that you're supposed to never feel empathy for. It's almost setting out to do the exact same thing as Paradise Now, like really put the viewer in the shoes of people who were there in the bunker, you know, and there are scenes where you're like, do it. And then you realize like, I am rooting for somebody who's like responsible for some of the most horrific acts in human history. 
in this small way, like not rooting for them overall, but like rooting for them to get the thing that they want in the scene, which is kind of, it's almost a trick of drama, right? Like that we're just primed to want characters to get what they want. Oh, I mean, I think it's a, I, it's, mm, I, whether it's a trick of drama or whether it is just something innate to being human that you, you understand another human being striving for something. And if he, and if that person's right in front of you, it's very hard to distance yourself enough to get into that state of mind where we, where we feel like another person isn't worth our um, empathy. You know, like it's, it's so easy for someone online to transform a person that shares all of their political and social beliefs, transform them into a monster. Um, but the, but the alter, the opposite is true, which is you can watch a movie like this and begin to feel companionship with Hitler, which I guess is like, those are the parentheses that our limited human abilities are kind of held within. I did not feel the same way you guys did about this film or its characters. I think what this film made me think throughout was how I almost resented how good the performances were, how great the production was in terms of production value. Like this is, as you say, a film that must be seen. It must be seen because it is irrespective of its subject, a really well-made film. It's a great movie, yeah. It is a great movie, like full stop. But when I look into Traddle's face and I see how beautiful she is, I wish she wasn't. Like, because I want to hate all of these people. And I effectively did throughout the film. You sat and and hate-watched for two and a half hours? I did. Mm -hmm. Like, I felt like I could do it, and I did do it. And I was resistant. I look. I could resist my feelings of sympathy for these people, but I. But the the film fan in me appreciated the film almost entirely. Like there was a symmetry between those two feelings, like almost an equal opposition working throughout. I've never seen a film that made me feel like that. Like this is so great, but this is so awful, but this is so great. I felt terrible after watching this too. Like I was totally like despondent. My wife came home from work and we like had a a silent dinner. <laughs> wow. I just didn't I didn't feel like I could effectively be around people for you just a while moved after this. your peas around the plate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I felt changed. Yeah, I don't think that uh that's an entirely dissimilar experience from what we're describing. I mean, I think that you guys said you were rooting for them, and I'm saying I wasn't. <laughs> I don't think. Let's be clear. I don't think Ben was saying that he was rooting for them. He just. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you can go down that comedic cul-de-sac all you want, Adam, but that's not the point I was making at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the old comedic cul-de-sac. Like you get close enough, and they seem human. You know, they seem yeah relatable in a way that is. It's it's almost too uncomfortable to bear. Like it's the highest production value fingers on a chalkboard of all time. Well, I think what I was saying is, if you get close enough, they are human, and this is the problem with confronting World War Two and Nazism and Nazism now. I was is- almost more freaked out by the interviews with the 
real lady yeah. at the beginning and end. Like you should see that doc if you haven't, because it's walking great. around breathing the same air as us is is bonkers. Well, yeah, and 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 wrestling visibly wrestling and revealing her like her uh, lifetime of struggle with with what she did and where she was and what and the life she, she'd led and whether or not you believe her at the start and at the end, whether or not, I mean, you can't watch those interview scenes with her, even though they're very brief without searching her face and her eyes for some sign that the remorse she's expressing, the culpability she's, uh, she's admitting to whether or not she really believes it or whether she's, Right. Just telling it's the you a apolo- story. Politician apologizing for, you know, sending a dick pic and we all debate whether that felt emotionally true or not and But you can't really you can't make that determination. World know? War it's Two impossible. is the dick pic of wars. I think I think we can all agree <laughs> about that. But but being inside the bunker and you know, and watching watching the central character, Hitler, a person that we all believe we know inside and out as much as we ever want to know a person that we have all collectively decided about you don't talk about hitler and say i haven't really decided about hitler i haven't really (laughs) you know like i'm still on the fence about him can you tell me more about hitler so that i can like make a decision like we're we all know where we stand on hitler and to watch him portrayed as a if this were a courtroom drama, right? If these same characters were just, if this was just like, and justice for all or something, and you were watching people come unglued in the stress of a, of a high stakes situation, it would still, it would still work. It's just, you're watching people come unglued at the culmination of 50 million deaths. 50 million deaths provoked by a war of adventure driven by a a lunatic that ever that every that it was so magnetic that even in these final moments where he's just like issuing insane he's just saying insane things like oh well the fantasy army will come and save the day and professional generals who have spent their entire lives their their lives from from youth uh, prepared to lead armies into battle are standing there taking those orders and going like oh Oh, yes, sir. You know, when they turn around, click their heels and walk out like no one could break the spell. Part of the reason that history only knows the lunatic side of Hitler is because Hitler himself never allowed any other side to be public. There wasn't another side. He was very like protective of that of that private side of him. The conversation that that really brought this home for me was the one between Eva and uh, and Junga when when the secretary is like, it's fucking crazy to talk to that guy over dinner and then also take dictation over his crazy shit. And Eva Braun's like, yeah, that's just when he puts on the Fuhrer hat. Yeah, that's just when he's the Fuhrer. Lol. Yeah. The people surrounding him, like it's a bunch of puzzle pieces that like, you know, in history just happen to fall in with each other and fit perfectly. Like, like Goebbels and Braun and like Goebbels' wife. <laughs> They're all... Goebbels lapels, I think, are also a character in the film. Yeah, yeah. shoulder pads. Like, Himmler, like they're all so, so much 
nuts in the same direction, like it's slightly different ways, but like they are all like so bought into this fantasy world that they live in. Well, so Goebbels and his wife, yes. Himmler, like there, there's these, there are gradations, I think, of people who are, who completely drank the National Socialist Kool-Aid and completely are just like in the cult. That Kool-Aid comes in small glass vials. Ugh, yeah, it does. <laughs> That's a, the, the cyanide is a big character in this film too. Yeah. Um, but then throughout, like even the top brass of the Nazis, you get people that are opportunists who are less, you know, less in the cult and more in the power cult. And you get people, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the military were, and you see it throughout the film. They're just in that military cult of I'm following orders and this is the Supreme commander. And they're not, no one ever asked them whether or not they believed in the final solution that nobody asked them about the politics. They're just generals. And in Germany, especially that cult, I mean, Hitler found a way in his rise to power to to incorporate that german militarism and sort of bend it to him and he didn't have to he didn't have to get inside their minds they were already they were like some of some of those officers were raised from birth to be officers right their fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers were officers they knew that was who they were going to be so it's weird to watch a situation like this where you do have your you know, your lady Goebbels, who's like, well, I'm just going to murder my children because I don't believe in a future without national socialism. And you're like, oh, well, well, it's a good thing that war is only conducted by men and <laughs> women are completely innocent of violence. But on the other hand, you've got all these people that are just like, all I've ever done is click my heels when someone gives me an order and I'm just going to do that until the end because I, I have no capacity to think independently some of those characters the sympathy i feel for them is not i mean it's not sympathy but like you can get inside their head and just realize oh they've never made an independent decision and now that now that we're you here not, you better not accidentally use the word sympathy or adam will stamp you with the <laughs> nazi stamp uh i wondered uh, what what did the term clausewitz mean so yeah clausewitz was just their code word like basically like D-Day, except it they had already in place a whole system for the defense of the city of Berlin. And so all they needed to do was say like institute operation Clausewitz and, and right. things would be in motion and they wouldn't have to like specify. Did Clausewitz primarily have to do with activating the Volkssturm? Volkssturm, right? But it's also it's also like where are we gonna where are our defensive lines? What what bridges are we gonna blow? Right. Like where's the like part part of the part of the plot of that doctor was like we we need food and medical supplies. We we need them here, there, and everywhere. And he he was his astonishment at the beginning was like, wait a minute, that we are not following the the program of mm -hmm. Operation Clausewitz here. Everybody's just it's it's going to anarchy and we need to so much of so much of the the german response at the end was like stick to the plan right that 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 crazy hangman um 
Right. Like we're chasing our own guys around in the streets, shooting them because they're deserting when when 75 percent of Berlin is now occupied by Russian troops. Yeah. The, the last act of the war in this movie is that he hung the dad of the little of the little Hitler youth kid. The littlest Nazi. The littlest Nazi. Like the, he hung him from the rafters as a whatever deserter or. We never got his uh, pre-credits uh, animal house. Yeah. And how many kids do you think shot at Russian tanks and were part of the Hitler youth that then just sort of assimilated back into culture and went to school and grew up to be quote unquote normal people? I mean, my mom was born in 1934. During the events depicted here, she would have been 11 years old. And so that kid is probably younger than my mom. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what is astonishing, I think, too. Because I grew up, my father fought in World War II. So I have always felt a, a personal connection to the events of the war. And I think people younger than me, and even people my age, didn't have older parents like I did. As soon as your connection to World War II is through your grandparents or great-grandparents, it kind of fades into that sort of, you know, like foggy mist of history. But it's not. Like there are Nazis walking around among us and in Germany especially and 10 years ago especially and 15 years ago, every person that you, every gray-haired person you met had some story. They had to have been there. I mean, they didn't all just hide in the hayloft for five years waiting for the war to be over. Yeah. And that's the crazy story of modern Germany. You, you couldn't put somebody in a position of power that hadn't at some point in a situation where you're like, oh, what did you, I mean, what did you do during the war, right? You had to ask that of everybody. That scene at the beginning when we first meet the doctor and they're like dumping all the documents out of the building and burning them. Like, if you believe that you've fought a just war, why are you burning your documents? It's like what, that's what like evil corporations do when they're getting sued, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, but those are the secrets, right? They're burning them because they're the secrets. What isn't a secret is Troutle taking dictation for all of Hitler's genocidal ideas. So fuck you, Troutle. Ah. Like, really? <laughs> Well, but that, but the, I mean, the amazing thing about the genocide in particular is that it was so, it was so encoded in euphemism. I mean, there are, as you try and piece together like the Shoah through documents, like there's just all these bills of lading and all these, I mean, there are so few actual documents that are explicit that somebody like Troutle could just spend the whole war listening to Hitler talk about talk euphemistically. And it's it's something that we do. We see now a lot with Trump where people say, oh, well, it's not what he's you know. Sure, he said that, but that's can't possibly be what he means. There was a ton of that going on too. just the the normal sort of sense that, well, he's it's just political, you know, hyperbole. He's not really when he says the international Jewry is our true enemy. What he's talking about is like interest rates, right? <laughs> he's just he's just saying he's going to lower interest rates. He's not saying he's going to like 
try and murder six million people. If you if you look at Hitler's career up until 1938, you could if he had died in 1938, you could judge him as the greatest politician in history. He had accomplished every single goal that he set out to accomplish with zero bloodshed by by the end of 1938. He'd rebuilt Germany, he had Anschlussed Austria, he'd taken back the Sudetenland, he had, you know, like German industry and production was was peaking, like he had done an incredible job and he'd been in power by that point for So John, you're saying Hitler had some good ideas too? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> the thing about it was he was doing all this, you know, like he was so ignorant of his ignorance. This is the this is the thing throughout history, right? You can be so ignorant of how little you know and and so be so full of confidence that he just was he got he was getting lucky. But he'd done the he, timing was really good. The timing was good, but he also like, you know, he was riding he was riding different waves. He also made some pretty good decisions. If he had just not invaded Poland, and I know this is the part where Adam gets excited. <laughs> I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> but you know, if he had stopped there, if he had stopped it at at the Munich Declaration or whatever, who knows? I mean, history would history would rate him pretty high. So the people of Germany, right, went into this war feeling like Hitler was their hero, really their champion. And there wasn't any of this stuff. There wasn't any Holocaust. There wasn't any 50 million people dead yet. And I think a lot of that, a lot of those blinders could stay on for the length of a war. Because what, hap what happened after 9-11? George W. Bush, who had 22% approval rating on 9-10, had a 92% approval rating on 9-12, and right. he didn't do anything. It activated in us. He some, ignored all the warnings. It he ignored all because, the warnings. And then, because he wasn't paying any attention. And then chicken shitted his way around the country for a full day, like on an airplane, not talking to anybody. Reading books upside down. Um, I don't know. Adam's got, a, Adam's got a real sour face on right now at the idea that we would be not really mad at Hitler all the time. <laughs> Adam just saw that scene where she was pulling the sheets up over the kids' heads and it was coming off of their feet. And he said, well, why doesn't she trim some off the top of the blanket and then sew it to the bottom to cover their feet? Yeah, who's, who's short-sheeting those beds? As a, as a father, that, is, that, that scene, I mean, the first time I saw this movie, that scene really broke me. This time I knew it was coming. And so the I, foreshadowing is so long too. you get so much time with those kids. You do. And the whole thing of like, take a drink of this. But when she gives them the sedative and you think it's the poison at first, but no, it's just to, it's just to sedate them. And her daughter, her daughter has an inkling of what's happening and fights her. Yeah. Ugh. Just talking about it makes my stomach drop. <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, 
uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rode, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. I was reading about the various mistakes that were made in this movie and the, the mistake that I you mean other than the Holocaust? My, my, signa- my signature segment um, actually kind of relates to that. Oh. Uh, when the drug for the Goebbels children is mixed, the Erlenmeyer flask is post-war, as you can clearly see from the logo, Shot Mains. The company moved it there in 1951 and 52. <laughs> I did not think I would laugh that hard during the show. That's great. That's maybe the best one of those I've ever heard. These flash truthers. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I also read that the cyanide capsules were produced in the camps, and there was a lot of cyanide sabotage going on. So, like, they were making cyanide capsules that wouldn't actually kill you, and uh, as as like a fuck you to the to the Nazis. So that's why the dog. They tested one on the dog. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Is that true? And uh, it's also why they rarely chewed on the capsule and did not shoot themselves in the head at the same time, because <laughs> right. in the case that the capsule was ineffective, uh, the the gunshot was a backup. Sort of like the pickleback to the shot of whiskey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of booze, what was what do you think that all, all that booze they were drinking was? Is that... Vodka, or is it like brandy or something? Schnapps. Schnapps. All of that consumed well away from Adolf Hitler, who uh, was a teetotaler and a vegan. Well, and you notice that every time Hitler comes anywhere around, everybody throws their cigarettes yeah. down. Yeah. And as so- the first thing that happens as soon as he's dead, everyone lights a cigarette. Smoke them if you got them. This is another hard thing in a lifetime of studying Hitler. I don't think there's any question that Hitler was a bore. Like, personally, he was a boring guy. He had a tremendous magnetism, and he could just sit and speechify. He was somebody that stood at the center of a party and just talked and expected everyone would listen, and everybody would. But he wasn't, like, interesting. And that, I mean, that's kind of hard to square. How do you separate, like, charisma from being interesting, but you can have charisma and not 
Well, it's like charisma at scale. Like when he's not in the room and they're talking about him, they're like, God, he is he's just always talking about vegetarian food. Give me a fucking break. And then like this is the guy that stands on a on a podium in front of thousands of screaming Nazis and whips them into a frenzy. Like it's almost I mean, it, it's like um, like some stand up comedians, like when you meet them in real life, have very, very radically different vibe from their onstage persona and uh it almost makes me think of that like like he's either on or he's off Mm -hmm. well it's the Fuhrer hat (laughs) it all goes back to the Fuhrer hat but you see it in this movie right people if he's not in the room they can speak pretty candidly to one another about the military situation about what needs to happen next um but then as soon as he's there, even though he's visibly breaking down and losing touch with reality, no one can talk back to him. No one can challenge even the craziest thing he says. Like only his very top generals are bold enough to say, I don't think those armies exist anymore, Mein Fuhrer. And then Hitler says, yes, they do make them fight. And the generals go, yeah, well, like, one of the things that this film is really effective at is like the moment you start feeling squicked out by the humanizing of this person, it's useful to remember that that Hitler is diminished the entire time in this film. He's he's physically diminished. All of his choices are wrong. Everyone behind his back is saying, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like he he never does anything right in the entire two and a half hours. Ever. Right. But imagine what an insufferable person he must have been when everything he did was working. Mm-hmm. Early in the war, he was like the poker player that doesn't know how to play poker. That just <laughs> keeps like going all in on a two, three offsuit. And then the flop comes ace, four, five. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wow, good, good job. Good poker player. And he's like, ha I've got the I've got him by the tail. And that just it uh, that just happened over and over, right? Nobody the generals couldn't fight against him cuz he just was he just was he didn't know the rules well enough to know how to that to know that he was doing it wrong. <laughs> Until he invaded Russia, right? He had not made a, a truly bad move. Uh, but then he made a colossally bad move. Right, he he should have hired one of the other secretaries. I think he should have stopped in Poland. I think if I think we all should take a lesson. If you get if you if you take Poland, don't go to Poland. <laughs> is the lesson? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking assholes. <laughs> ben sent that to me in an email. That wasn't my joke. <laughs> You're writing material for each other. John doesn't feel like he's funny enough on the show, so I write some bits for him. I was like, could episode. you punch punch my shit up for me, Ben? <laughs> Did you guys think Himmler looked like fuckboy Richard Gere? <laughs> <laughs> no. All right, that's this episode of Friendly Fire. <laughs> I don't know if we'll be coming back ever, but... Uh... I thought he looked Richard Geary to me. Which which Himmler are you talking about? The, uh, the, the round glasses Himmler that we meet in the beginning. Okay, you you thought he looked like Richard Gere? I kind of thought he was cast like Richard Gere. Wow. Did he not look like that to you? I mean, I think that the, the, the actor playing Himmler was 
definitely more attractive than the actual Himmler. Sure. I, I, and I think we could say across the board, this film was cast really very well. well. The guy playing Martin yeah. Borman looked exactly like Martin Borman. Yeah. It was spooky. And, and Goebbels, too. Just like, yeah. how did That's you even it. find an actor that looked like that? I felt bad for the actor who looked like Goebbels. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you got to look like that every day. Yeah, there's no, there's no escaping that. Just walk around looking like Goebbels all the time. Do you know that's who you're reading for? <laughs> yeah. You're like, I was hoping to play Hitler. When who he is to- uh, who is Jay Gerbs? <laughs> that um, that wh- who is this character? <laughs> when he when he like went to university acting school do you think they were like hey uh have you ever considered getting into radio (laughs) god or playing gerbils one of the two (laughs) one of the two (laughs) i don't think that any of the performances in this film did anything to slow it down like they were they were all pretty top-notch and some were amazing everything about it yeah i mean the what what do you guys before watching this movie what did you think when you thought of the the final days of World War II, like what did you think was happening around Hitler in the last week of the war? I so rarely think of the bunker. I think of swastikas being bombed off of the top of buildings. Did you think that they were like marching, they were walking around big marble clad halls, like signing files and stuff, or that he was sitting behind a desk pounding on it saying... Advance, advance. I mean, what? How did you picture it? I feel like in school, when you learn about the end of World War II, they don't really go into the bunker part of it. I remember just reading that Hitler killed himself. I'd say that the one thing that like makes me a little uneasy is that the way Hitler reacts to bad news in this film is so similar to the mentally ill people I've had in my life reacting to bad news the kind of like the 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 tone he takes the like the energy he draws on um reads so much to me like you know family members of mine who uh were not in their right mind reacting to bad news and i wonder if i mean i think hitler was pretty crazy by this point but I wonder if it reads as he's going crazy because he's losing. It, it may it may cast it as that, like he uh, he's losing his mind because he's losing the war, and not he's losing his the war because he lost his mind. Not that he was crazy all along. Not that he was he was a madman to even get into this. Every scene kind of is presenting a society in the throes of madness, like pinning iron crosses on guys' jackets in the fucking subway in the middle of the fall of Berlin. Like everything is emblematic of how, of how crazy he was. But I wonder if, if it, um, if it sort of chicken and eggs that in a way that is problematic. Yeah. I guess you have to go into it understanding that, that he was not a rational actor throughout the course of his life, but it, but it begs, Oh God, it suggests the question, how many of our leaders, how many leaders are rational actors? Ultimately, the, the, the whole question of, of the Holocaust and of world war two uh, throughout the course of my life 
in academics has been one of how do we prevent this from ever happening again? How could this have ever happened in the first place? And I think the danger is to think that Hitler was a singularly crazy individual. Um, and, and there, there have been plenty of people in my life that, and I think it's still true who want to pin the whole war and everything that happened on the shoulders of one crazy person who was, I don't know, magic, I guess. And I think one of the reasons this film is important is that you see how Hitler has no physical power. He's not physically threatening. He is just transmitting. He's transmitting his insanity through a system that is insane. And everyone's sort of just doing their small part, which makes it very definitely possible, if not probable that it happens again, some form of it. Never this, right? Trump could never do this. No autocrat could do this exactly. But, but is this something that will happen again and again and again? Because there's something in the nature of leadership and something in the way that we follow leaders. There's that, uh, I think it's called the psychopath test, that John Ronson book. One of the kind of shocking statistics is that something like one in a hundred people are on the sociopathy psychopathy spectrum but they're like super overrepresented in, in politics and and in the leadership of corporations like it's like one in ten and it's i mean i, I think psychopathy is just one small part of how crazy hitler was but understanding that we like there's something about the way our society and economy are set up that people with no compassion for others are uniquely uh, good at rising to power is, uh, you know, that's something that makes me question a lot about the way our society and economy are set up. Well, but it's in the nature of power. The alternative to having someone in charge is to have no one in charge. I think we need to have a, a dispassionate computer AI be in charge. Yes. Take care of us. And maybe send out some drones to monitor us to make sure yeah. that we are behaving according to the algorithm. Anyway, that's what I'm writing for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's um, all those tests that they did throughout the 50s and 60s where they would give students the opportunity to turn up the electricity on a fellow student if right, they were behind a mirror or Philip Zimbardo throwing a bunch of college kids into a prison experiment. Yeah. All that, all that stuff. Um, you know, it just reveals over and over again that, that it's in us, the beast is in us and, and it isn't, it isn't just one race or one gender that has this capacity. It is, in us all. And I think the danger of, of saying over and over again, how crazy Hitler was right. is that Hitler wasn't completely crazy. 
there was a lot about him that was sane. And if and if we if we take all of these crimes and all of this that happened and just put it into a box and call it crazy, um, it makes us more vulnerable to it when it comes along again in the form of somebody that seems mostly sane. And a lot of a lot of Hitler's projects were were grandiose, but he pulled them off. They were, you know, he, things were working. And, you know, the thing about the, the thing about Hitler's like the thing about National Socialism's approach to the Jews that seems so crazy to us is like this idea that the Jews were we, we think of the National Socialists as saying that the Jews were subhuman and that they needed to be wiped off the face of the earth. But that it really doesn't make sense. But the National Socialists didn't think that about the Jews. They were terrified of the Jews. They thought that the Jews, they understood that the Jews were powerful. They had a vision of the world which was based around the idea of populations, peoples, the Germans, the French, the Slavs, and that history was a story of these races struggling for dominance. And that made sense to them. And in that, in their version of the world, the Germans were on top and they could prove it. They could defeat the French. They could defeat the Italians. They could push them. They could take their territory. That all made sense. But the Jews didn't have a country. They were international. And they were in the top ranks internationally in government and in culture. So the Jews were an existential threat to the German idea that they were the top people. So Hitler wasn't exterminating the Jews because he was just had this weird obsession about them. The whole vision of the universe was that every time you played the wrong kind of classical music, if it wasn't by, if it wasn't by Beethoven, if you were playing some, if you, if you were looking at modern art, it was the Jews getting inside and making your Germanness weak, you know, and there's an internal logic to it. Now it seems crazy to us now because we don't look at the world as like a struggle between the Slavs and the, and the Celts. But if you do look at the world that way, there's nobody quite like the Jews. Well, I mean, there's still Nazis around, and I I think that like their definition of whiteness has grown somewhat. Yeah, right. They include Italians now. <laughs> Russians are a okay. Yeah, Italians are. I mean, it, it's kind of a weird idea that, like, like the idea that, uh, like, oh, a a good way to have a country would be all people of one ethnic heritage and no people of any other ethnic heritage. Like, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what their explicit goal is. And based on what evidence is that a good situation to set up? Like what, like why that? Why do you believe that a bunch of people from one, from one race being in a country together is, is the best way to set something up? And it's just so tribal. It's so purely tribal. Right. And and when the and when the definition of the tribe shifts in the span of 60 years but they're still trying to do the same thing, it, it really undercuts everything about it. It's like I, I mean, oh, contemporary Nazism is gibberish. 
I mean, and 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 I think we're in danger if we tie, if we tie like skinheads in L.A. to National Socialism and hey. say, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you keep your hair short, but I wouldn't I, call you a skinhead. I do not endorse any of that. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like their national socialism had an ideology that was internally consistent. It, it requires that you look at the world a certain way. But within that thinking, it like uh, like decisions naturally proceed. Now, Nazis now that are wearing it like a fashion hat. Where it's like whites against browns or something. It's not internally consistent because. You know, I mean, I think 23 and me is going to be the is going to be a real eye opener for the Nazis when they when they all get their DNA tested and they're like, holy, holy cats. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm 74 percent, whatever, Tuscanian. You know, my I have a good friend. You need a credit card and a mailing address <laughs> to have 23 and me actually oh, work, I that's true. which I think disqualifies <laughs> a lot of those people. But I have a friend up here who grew up in a very anti-Semitic home. His uncles all had swastika tattoos on their knuckles and were all members of white supremacist prison gangs. And he and his grandmother once took him aside and whispered in his ear, you know, there's a legend that there's some Jew in us. And he did 23 and me and he's 20% Jewish. And this is the, le this is the, the, the legend of Hitler, right? That he, that, right. That he had a, secret jewish lineage yeah so there's there's there's, there's so even much a of, scene about that in this movie like when they get married and and the guy is like going through the procedures like can you mm -hmm. show me your identification and prove that you're of pure aryan stock it's like um it's the fuhrer but yeah <laughs> right it, all that stuff resonates and, and because this movie is german too there's so much going on so many little dropped references that would that would really like ring a bell for a german audience little mm. stuff like that do you think this film could only be made in germany like to, for another country to have made this film at germany i think would have deadened its effect in how, some way how do you do this movie where they're all speaking in british accents yeah exactly <laughs> yeah I mean, like, I, I don't think our country has ever made a piece of art like this. One of the ways that we observe the films in this project is in observing how a country sees itself during wartime and, and post-war time. Do you feel like this film is cathartic for Germany to have made it and produced it the way that it did? The, the catharsis in Germany of the last 70 years of that whole country wrestling with it, wrestling with this and trying to figure out what to do, whether or not they should even salute each other when they are in the army, you yeah. know, what, what role the military has, what, you know, how to wrestle with the fact that they did become the dominant economic power of Europe. They are, um, the center of Europe. Every kid in Germany has thought about their complicity in in World War II in ways that in the United States we just even even now with the with the way our education system has changed to address our complicity 
in the crimes of our forefathers. It's nothing compared to their daily wrestling with them. Like, how terrifying is it on any given day to go up into your grandparents' attic and unzip a garment bag? <laughs> like, that's a fear that we'll never know. Well, but at the same time, I mean, I've, I distinctly remember sitting in a bar in a town called Freckenhorst with a bunch of guys drinking during Schutzenfest. And You're just making up these German <laughs> words, by the way. And, and we're sitting around drinking. We're drinking. Everybody's getting drunk. I'm not drinking at this point. I'm drinking ginger ale. You were having your own personal Scheisenfest. I was. I was Scheisenfesting. But I was hanging and we were getting. And as the, and the drunker we got, the closer we got to, well, you know, Hitler had a lot of good points. And as the evening wore on, and, and these were people that, you know, they, these were my pals, my, my 24-hour pals. And they were older than I was. So they were, the, they were the sons of veterans. Their fathers had fought in the war. And it's so simple. It's so easy to eight beers in to start to reminisce about a time when, when everything was so legendary. You know, it just plays, it just plays so big. It's the exact same motivation of flying the stars and bars behind your jacked up pickup truck on your way to a university of Alabama game. It, it just feels so tied. <laughs> you can just pull, you pull all the crime out of it and just leave all that's left is like the really cool uniforms and it, and you know, and the idea. These events in this movie kind of put a period on the end of a dark chapter in German history, but also like like these characters are all finding out that their closely held belief that they're the best and they're never going to lose because they're the best was wrong, you know? And they they deal with realizing how wrong they were in various ways. Except that Germany sits on top of the world economic they they literally rule Europe by any other definition. If you are a German now and you want to say that Hitler had some good points, you can say, look, even our complete annihilation and defeat during the war did not keep us down from our place where we belong. And you can explain it a thousand different ways to them. I mean, doesn't that go to the point of maybe it wasn't so much Hitler? as things that uniquely, you know, are ad advantageous about where Germany is geographically and the mm. kinds of resources it has access to. And <laughs> Something maybe internal to the Volk. <laughs> no, I mean... Is that what you're trying to say? I, I, no, I'm saying... Wow, I'm saying, man. I'm saying it undercuts, it undercuts the idea that there was something special about Hitler. Like, there's something, there's something about what Germany does culturally or, or whatever like well hitler throughout the whole the the whole war and this was the crazy thing about about the end where he was saying you know the germans brought this upon themselves and they deserve annihilation you know he stuck to that story that it wasn't him it was that the german people were the winners of the race pyramid Goebbels said, we didn't force the people. They gave us a mandate yeah. to do this to them. And so by losing, they were, they were failing. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't that Hitler took them here and that, that it was that 
this was their destiny and they failed because of weakness. Like it, you know, you, you think prior to Darwin, there wasn't a, a, a mental logic for this survival of the fittest idea that became so, um, you know, it got taken out of biology and turned into this social Darwinistic kind of idea that that became a philosophical idea rather than a scientific one. But this idea that you that you fought to the top, which is like a total misunderstanding of what the fittest means in the context a complete of misunderstanding of biology. But, but people love it as an analogy. And. This was the whole premise and that having failed to fight to the top, there was no reason to save the German people. They should be wiped from the face of the earth because I guess they, you know, I guess the Slavs do win. Like the Slavs proved their superiority over the Germans as far as Hitler was concerned. These guys are such shitty losers. Like they they blame the equipment. Just like me when I lost Seattle City Council race, I blamed the voters. Yeah. (laughs) Shitty loser. (laughs) Well, I think my my question stands though. Like, do, is is there something that Germany is doing in reckoning with what Germany did that is better than what our society does in reckoning with the crimes of our forefathers? I mean, I personally, I feel like the I feel like it's very very easy to learn the wrong lesson. And my whole life, the lesson I thought we learned was that dissent was the thing that in America we enshrined. Um, That things like the ACLU were the difference. It wasn't a question so much of uh, to, to sit and reckon with the blood that's on all of our hands, but rather that within our institutions, we made sure that, I mean, freedom of the press was the thing that we said about ourselves. This was why it couldn't happen there. This was, this was the thing that made America separate and exceptional. We had freedom of the press. We had f- the right to assembly. We had all these constitutional rights that were hard, hard won and were very difficult to maintain. We had to fight for them all the time because they were under assault from all directions, not just from the government, but corporations wanted to limit our ability to protest and and what's crazy is that activists also want to limit the way that we express ourselves right everybody who has a big vision for how the world works in order to accomplish their vision all they need is for a certain percentage of the people to shut up and take their medicine and and I think we're in a place right now in America where we've lost that. Well, we have we have no idea whether America will still exist by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it will. I'm 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 betting on it. Ben, I'm talking to someone who has bags of bunker food in his living room. I do have bags no of joke. bunker food. No joke. I walked past it to to go into John's studio. Oh, yeah. So he's feeling pretty confident. Well, no, watching, Adam's- watching a lot of uh, Robert Baker on TV and ordering his buckets. Adam is literally drinking my bunker coffee right now. And it is, it's my inherited bunker coffee. And mm. it is fucking me up. My head is ringing from caffeine. I know. This stuff is insane. Total bunker bag coffee. We, we are totally gacked out here. <laughs> but so, the, so I feel like, the, like Germany now, 
and the United States now are wrestling with some of these problems in somewhat similar ways, in different ways too. Like when Syria came apart, the Germans very definitely politically opened their arms to Syrian refugees in the tens and hundreds of thousands. Like they, they assumed the burden right on behalf of Europe. They did. And that is a product of half of a century of wrestling with their place and what to do. But in the United States right now, there is an awful lot of, from every direction, uh, a lot of energy being poured into, into eliminating dissent and eliminating the, the, um, the mechanisms for dissent. We're not interested in hearing people argue from a third position. You're, you're meant to pick a side now. And as soon as you put politics and, and issues of the day into canisters like that and say there's good and bad, there's right and wrong, there's, there's our way or their way, that's when you become vulnerable. And it's not necessarily always going to be national socialism that happens. There are an awful lot of, since, since, the, since the Holocaust, there have been innumerable not innumerable, you can numerate them, <laughs> but there have been more than a handful of subsequent genocides. There's one happening right now that no one is thinking about. No one cares right now about an ongoing genocide because we're worried about some kids in a, in a cave in Thailand because that's just the, that's the news cycle that we're on. Well, this episode comes out in... I think November or something. So oh. <laughs> I doubt anybody will be thinking about kids in a cave in Thailand by then. But you know, like in Myanmar right now, a group of people is being ethnically cleansed and we don't know what to do about it. And certain people are talking about it like at a state level. Right. But not enough that it certainly hasn't intruded into my Twitter feed. And it's been, it's been going on for a long time. It's also like, I think one of the weird legacies of World War II that we feel like we're anti-ethnic cleansing, but also not sure war is the right solution to it. Right. And whose responsibility is it? Like every time we go into Somalia or Rwanda, right? like the United Nations isn't really empowered exactly to be a military occupier. I mean... Anyway, all this stuff is still ongoing. And the, and I mean, the, that's such an interesting thing about the United Nations. It's like it's like the multilateralism goal of preventing conflicts like World War II, but not like the core thing of trying to wipe out a race of World War II. Like the, the fact that the UN has been fairly ineffective on, on that side of the coin is... Is, while being an amazing force for good on the other side of the coin, like providing a, a forum for multilateralism and preventing huge 50 million fatality conflicts. But all those stories in Bosnia of the UN kind of surrounding a village and the Serbs just walking past, like, what are you going to do about it? Right. And the, the UN's army, the soldiers there weren't empowered to, shoot back it requires so much buy-in right the uh, the idea of a united nations and for for the second half of the 20th century it seemed that the, what we, that's where well, that's where we were headed inevitably that that was the the direction civilization was headed we were climbing the stairs 
I mean, I like to think that it's like up three stairs, back one, up two more, back one. I just feel like right now we're in, in a, like a back two. It's a real opposite to tracked situation. <laughs> Super timely, probably a tour ever. <laughs> just sip your bunker coffee and wait for the end. I mean, that concept of buy-in is all throughout this movie. All of these scenes are little microcosms of it, you know. Spear saying like, yeah, you should stay in Berlin. That'll be great for the morale or, you know. Yeah, right. The generals. Be on the stage when the curtain falls. Or like the scene where they, they get out of the truck and go like confront the guys that are chasing the deserters and, you know, the deserters get shot. They're like, what are you going to do about it? Even though you're in a uniform that is way more rank insignias on it than I have. Like, what what are you going to do, Doc? That strange condescension towards a medical professional, like, like as being less soldier than I am. Yeah. Was especially horrifying there, even though he was outranked. Well, this is the thing about the German military police structure at the time. Hitler and... Himmler, these guys had their own little forces, the SS, the SA, the Gestapo, the Wehrmacht, the, and they were all structured in such a way that they were competitive with one another. So there was a lot of interagency, like tussling. You were loyal. Remember when Himmler betrays Hitler and there's this sudden sense of like all these people were Himmler's people? There really was a a system like that in in this like over because there were everybody was in uniform right but all the different uniforms you know you were kind of loyal to your different guy they were all mostly just jealous of the Gestapo because they had the coolest watches well because they kept stealing American pilot watches exactly were you distracted by the bag that Trottle was wearing at, during her escape it, it was the she had the only backpack of anybody there great bag oh you were just having bag envy yeah yeah that was a nice bag luggage envy uh-huh. i was i was interested in what she how many like crackers like when you're escaping a situation like that it's very hard as you're leaving the bunker to throw every bottle of champagne in it <laughs> all the crackers right because that's just not you're thinking like get me out of here mm-hmm. but the but the challenge in a situation like that would be now you're going to have, like, there's no food in Germany. Right. You got to pre- provision yourself for your escape to wherever it is you're going to go. Yeah. For however long it takes before somebody shows up with a, with any food at all. So that bag, the fact that everybody was running and she had a, she had the foresight to, and I, I, I for a while I was like, is that backpack just full of that fur jacket? Is it just her fur coat? That makes her even less of a a sympathetic (laughs) character. She's just like, gotta get that coat. This is gonna go for a killing on eBay when eBay is invented. (laughs) This is a thing that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in subsequent episodes. But one of the the lesser known stories of World War II is this aftermath. Um, People didn't stop dying the day the war ended. They kept dying for years of starvation and disease. You know, they leave that bunker and they they head out. I mean, it's still a miracle that anybody 
from that bunker could have made it out of Berlin and survived into old age, let alone at the end where you have your your animal house, like whatever happened to you got you got a dozen a dozen of the people that were in there on day on day zero. Yeah. That are like, oh well shit, I guess I just change my hat and just sort of walk over this way and a good sixty, seventy percent of those whatever happened to them died in Russian captivity, so Well, a lot of them, right? <laughs> sure, but I mean, didn't you gasp every time at the people who made it to like nineteen ninety four? Yeah, like right. Hitler's num Hitler's number one bodyguard, that really tall Otto. Otto. Otto lived to two thousand four or something. It's like, oh, what did you do in the war? Oh, I was Hitler's body man. <laughs> I was with him until, I mean, like I was the guy that went into the room after he shot himself. I burned his body. But, you know, ever since then, I've been working at IG Farben <laughs> as a, you know, middle manager <laughs> in the. What'd you like, do during the war, Grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> if you're sitting around the water cooler playing, what did you do during the war? That's, that's one that everybody goes back to work. I was the kind of guy during the war where Hitler made really intense eye contact with me and. <laughs> Said, I can trust you to do some stuff after I'm dead, right? <laughs> that was me. Otto likes uh, visiting Portland because he doesn't pump his own gas <laughs> at the service stations. Jesus. So I have no idea why I do this show. <laughs> so appalling. I think maybe more than any other film in this project, this one has inspired the most talk about the conflict rather than the film itself. Yeah. Because it feels so real. This is also like the least valorous depiction of the war, of World War II specifically. Also, this is nothing but guys shooting each other and killing themselves and lighting them on fire. There's a type of war film that you could even consider like exciting and fun. This is the exact antithesis of that. I also thought it was very, very weird how the film chose which moments of death and brutality to show and which moments to turn the camera away from. I mean, we talked about the the death of the Goebbels, the murder of the Goebbels children earlier. When Goebbels and his wife do their little murder-suicide routine later, the camera cuts away. Yeah, we watch each children, each child take its last breath. It's shuddering last breath, but we don't see them kill each other. And we don't see Hitler and Eva Braun. Yeah. What a fucking coward this film made Joseph Goebbels out to be. Like the architect of, of maybe the greatest atrocities of this war. And like he doesn't even have the stones to kill his own children. He makes his wife do it. They, you see them sawing through people's limbs to perform amputations. Like body parts fall into buckets on the floor. It seems to make such strong choices in in those moments and i don't really understand the logic of them you know quentin tarantino's uh inglorious bastards unglorious bastards whatever his fucking movie is where he gives you the schadenfreude of standing over uh and shooting hitler in the face 50 times right. where you're like oh well, spoiler alert it's on the it's on the list you're like good job director of film boy you know that didn't actually happen but we sure got to feel like it did for your for the end of your fucking shitty movie <laughs> spoiler alert uh and in this movie 
you know, you want to watch Hitler and Eva Braun die and they don't let you. They don't give you the satisfaction. They don't give you the satisfaction of watching Goebbels die because in a way, history didn't give us that satisfaction. Hmm. We didn't find his body. We didn't parade it through the streets. Like we have pictures of Mussolini hanging upside down. And so we don't have to fixate on it. But what happened to Hitler? His teeth are supposedly or were supposedly taken back to Moscow and eventually were ground up. And, you know, like there's something about the fact that he knew to burn his body. How fucked up is it that like whatever catharsis this film may or may not intend to deliver, like it observes his wishes about what happened to his body post-death. Like, it follows his rules. Because we can't otherwise. You don't get to have your moment with Hitler. You don't get to Tarantino this moment. You don't. And that's what makes that moment in Tarantino's movie so cheap. Yeah. You know, and this is why we threw Osama bin Laden's body out the door of a helicopter into the ocean. Like everybody wants to see a picture of Osama bin Laden with a bullet wound in his forehead and we're denied it. And so, yeah, the filmmakers aren't independently respecting Hitler's wishes. We're all forced to. Yeah. There is an intimacy between us and the characters. We're in there at the dinner table. We're in there in the bedrooms. But then the film pivots that perspective into third person all of a sudden, we're seeing things through the eyes of the radio operator. We're seeing him look down the hallway and see people close the doors behind them. Like, there's a detachment there that this film pivots to yeah. very intentionally in order to observe those rules. Yeah. Right. That radio operator becomes, like, the final witness of of history, of so much of it. Everyone else is gone, and he's just there, like, waiting for somebody to send a message, and Goebbels is like... I relieve you of duty. <laughs> right. And he's like, I got, I, what? Like, I'm like, the only one here? <laughs> he's like, there's no one to give my time card to. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, will I be receiving like my last paycheck in a week or two or how's, uh, how's that work? So can I take all those cigarettes in the <laughs> storehouse, in the storeroom or, uh, can you guys spare a box so I can like take the stuff out of my desk? Cause I don't have, I didn't, I wasn't expecting <laughs> Yeah, just any file box would be perfect. Who was the hero of this movie? Troutle? The thing about Troutle is that in the bookend interviews with her, she talks about herself in the third person the same way that Ava Braun talks about Hitler wearing the two hats. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, I mean, in a in a documentary about Troutle that uses, that that edits up hours of interview footage. I think that is a very specific choice to use those comments in a film that articulates something very similarly. I don't think you get to judge yourself in a third person kind of way. She was nineteen or something. She had agency. I mean, does this film change if it's not Alexandra Maria Lara playing her? I mean, does history change if the actual woman wasn't young and beautiful at the time? No. The other character that, you know, this movie is somewhat based on their recollection of is the architect Speer. And 
he also is like a fractionally more sympathetic portrayal than the others, you know? And I guess uh, he has the rep of, of having repented later in life as well in a way that like, I mean, all the guys that committed suicide obviously like didn't repent. He also like was in jail for 20 years and tried the entire time to get out. I guess didn't believe that he deserved to be there. I mean, Spear is such an interesting case from start to finish in the war and in the story. I mean, he's like the most sane of the people that is like at a high level, right? Like when he, when he talks to Troutel and he like, she's like, oh yeah, like he keeps saying, like, I heard Hitler saying like, we're, we're about to, this is about to turn around. Like this is, he's got the, he's got the true story written all over his face, you know, like this is, this is not going to end well for any of us. Well, and he, and it's not just, it's not just self-aggrandizement. Like he did actually work against Hitler's scorched earth policy in the in the last years of the war. You can't clean anybody up who was like, hey, you know what I think I'm going to do? Get into politics. Which party? <laughs> National Socialist. <laughs> I really like this Hitler guy. He's got a, he makes a lot of good points. <laughs> and yet these are real people. And I guess that's this movie. And real people are people. So why should it be that we get along so awfully? That core question, though, about who the hero is at the film. There are films not based on true events that are like nothing but antiheroes that are not compelling in any way. And and I think films without heroes are generally not good. But is it because these are real characters and there are no heroes that that it still becomes a good film for its lack of heroes? Like, who do you want to win? That's just it. I can't remember another film, war film or otherwise. The where they... I wanted the Russians to win. <laughs> yeah. Is that it? <laughs> but the Russians, you never see them. Yeah, they're the faceless the last... enemy soldiers in this movie. Except, yeah. at, the, except at the table where, uh, where Germany surrenders. Right. And, the, and the guys like would, if, I, if you were me, would you surrender to you, asshole? Like that moment was... Heavy. I think that was Marshall Zukov too. I mean, yeah. I think that was um, the ultimate hero of the of the Soviet Union, right? The he's the big dog, and uh, I mean, such a. Can you imagine sitting there at that table and having Yodel or whatever come and say like, "Well, we're not. It's not like we're going to surrender. Surrender. Like, let's negotiate." And he's like, oh, "Are you serious? Do you realize what's going to happen to you now? Like, we're going to." take every drop of blood from you this film is a great combination of of scenes like if the film wasn't as great as it is you could argue that it's too sceny because there are all these individual components that are so so great that being one of them there's the montage of the letters being written there's the holy communion of the cyanide being given out to the people in the bunker there's the guy going off and and doing coke and going to orgies. There's the there's the Eva Braun scene where she tries to host a dance party as yeah. artillery is raining down. Well, around every them. time Eva is on screen and you see that like everything is fine. Look that that actress manages to. I mean, she can turn that on and off. What an incredible performance. The uh, the confidence of someone who like she's acting as if she's already died. Yeah. Yeah, and and like, then cannot be killed. 
on, you guys. Don't be so down. Let's have a party. It's wow. Like, Her what? performance was incredible. I mean, Magda Goebbels in killing her kids and in her final scene where she drops to her knees and begs Hitler to leave Berlin and give them, you know, like we could still, we could still make it out in a way. She completes the, in, in every movie you see where, where bad things, where the, where the movie is bad with the exception maybe of like seven where everything that could happen bad in the movie seven happens. There's no, there's no point in the movie seven where you're like, Oh, he should have killed the guy. <laughs> like, no, it all happened. Yeah. But in this movie, like if this were a fiction, you could not have had a character murder her kids that way. It wouldn't have made it into any script. It doesn't ring true. Yeah. It's impossible. It's not, not going to test well. But it's impossible to conceive of of such villainy. And yet in this movie we watch it and it's it's not just that it's true, it's that this movie conveys it truly. You don't stop for a second and question whether or not she was capable of it. Right. She's begging Hitler on her knees to leave Berlin after she's done that. Like after she's done it. She still wants to live. And wants Hitler to survive. That uh, that liminal space that Ava Braun exists in between those two worlds, I think, is just fascinating. Like, I'm not saying this in order to answer the question of who the hero of the film is, but I've found her value to the story as high as anyone else's as a character in this film. I just, I can't understand her. As inscrutable as anyone is in this film... Her character is maybe the most inscrutable. Except so many people in that bunker are, their their whole existence is predicated on some version of everything is fine narrative. Yeah. Like everything is going to work out narrative. Everybody's got one. It's just hers is so vivacious. It's public too. Yeah. And she, so she's holding it all together in a way. Yeah. All these guys who are like, maybe I should desert. Maybe I should run. And she's like, come on, don't be down, have a cigarette. And they're like, oh, I guess everything's fine. If Eva, if, I mean, Eva's closest to the man. In this film, she could be depicted as the most insane. Oh, so are, are we about to get Adam's power ranking for craziest people in the top <laughs> in the third of the Reich. Nazi party? <laughs> in the last days of the Third it's, Reich? It's impossible. I mean, self-delusion is such a key element to this whole story and you just look around you right look around your friends look around the world that you're in right now and measure the measure the self-delusion that's operating just in the just in your small circle try and get a measure of the self-delusion that's operating in you how much of what we all are dealing with every day is made possible by a certain film of self-delusion or a, a film of just not wanting to face even the small things. I'm not talking about like big politics. I'm talking about just like the relationship that you know between two people that is a broken relationship that everybody knows, but we're all pretending it's fine. And just extrapolate that out. It's not the, the crazy thing about crimes of this scale is that 
the, the human capacity is so actually limited. You can't conceive of 6 million deaths or 50 million deaths. So your brain just tops out and basically you're, you can suffer as much pain in the breaking up of a relationship that you've had for six months as in anything that happens in life. Because that's just where the needle pegs. That's our capacity. Being brokenhearted over somebody that, you know, that cheated on you with your best friend is the most pain you can feel. So if you're responsible for the deaths of 50 million people or if your boyfriend is, it's not any harder to just put on a brave face and throw a party. Right. And we all deal with trauma in super different ways. And right. And some people just don't have the capacity. I mean, think about losing a child horrifically. Think about losing a child horrifically where it's your responsibility, where you forgot to put the car in park and the car runs over your kid. That happens to people all the time and they live, they live, they keep going, they get up in the morning. And then you go online and somebody spills ketchup on their fucking Pokemon costume and they act like it's the goddamn end of the world. I hate to, where did I, why did I just turn into my dad? Oh, (laughs) fuck. I was so close. So close to not being my dad at any point. You want to take another run at that comparison? (laughs) We have an editor here. (laughs) But like, that's, that's, that's what I mean about just like, we can only, we have a floor of pain and we have a ceiling of joy. Yeah. I mean, it's also like a film about like capabilities, you know, like the, the Nazis seemed so capable and they like, uh, there's so many movies about, you know, Nazi plots to, you know, dig up ancient magic and use it on everybody or whatever. Like there's just the one movie about that. We can call it by its name. Captain America. Indiana Jones. <laughs> what are you talking about? No, but like, I mean, they, like there's so many conspiracy theories and like, oh, like they cloned Hitler and shot him to the moon and they're coming back. And is that a movie we're going to watch? Uh, Hitler clones on the moon. <laughs> there is a movie about that. I forget is what there? it's called. Yeah. Put that on the list. We should put that on the list. It's it's a really bad movie. Um, You're talking about Iron Sky. Yeah, that's from the 2012. One. The Nazis set up a secret base on the dark side of the moon in 1945, where they hide out and plan to return to power in 2018. Hey, that's this year, you guys. Whoa. What? But um, the amount of just like chaotic running around not knowing what's going on that's going on in this bunker the fact that without the systems of the state to wield they're not actually capable of good conspiracies you know that actually work is a little bit reassuring that as as the as the power is taken away from them there's there's nothing special or capable about them uh, yeah and it's again like the danger the danger to the danger of making these people master criminals, superhuman capabilities, like ex- exceptionally brilliant or stupid or crazy or evil is partly the danger because so much of what this is and was was mundane, banal. Would you say that evil is banal? <laughs> 
I think you could talk about the banality of evil. Whoa. Did whoa, did we just coin a thing? <laughs> we're 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 pretty smart. That's a great t-shirt. <laughs> whoa. Evil, more banal than you might realize. <laughs> evil now with more banality. <laughs> Oh, that's actually a good t-shirt. It might make it hard to strike a really romantic note. Uh, this is the end of our podcast story. It's the time where we uh, where we rate the film. We have to do it. Happens at the end of every episode. But what's special about Friendly Fire is the ratings change and are customized to every film we watch. For Downfall, I've designed the rating system based on... Uh, on a moment about halfway through the film. We jump some years. We begin with the auditioning of Hitler's secretary, and then we jump. We jump years to the date of Hitler's birthday. And uh, on the occasion of this birthday... It's also my father's birthday. Well, I was going to say, that's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a big part of, of world history also. Uh-huh. We never see this get made, and we don't really see it enjoyed. But there's a scene when Keitel comes to the bu- to the bunker to talk to Hitler, and uh, and Hitler's using the magnifying glass and he's and he's scheming for oil fields in uh, in Bucharest, and in the corner of the frame, he is clearly eating birthday cake as he's doing this study. Like there's never like there's never candles and the blowing out of the candles and like there's never that celebration they don't even show there's, it on the plate do they they just show the fork they show it on the fork it's peripheral birthday cake yeah i noticed that too that's a weird that's a weird peripheral birthday cake i said i did not notice that i was so focused on bucharest <laughs> as soon as, as, soon as i was, he was so focused on bucharest the john roderick story <laughs> i missed the cake that anachronism is what this film depicts the entire time normal life in the bunker the celebration of a birthday during wartime hitler's birthday as a thing to celebrate the scale is one to five birthday cakes and for downfall this is maybe the most difficult film to rate it is i think i think it's easy to defend the quality of the film it is so well made. And and the jobs that these actors are given is maybe so... It's the most thankless, right? Right, yeah. You don't want to be like Goebbels-looking guy for right. the rest of your career. Not only in terms of how they may be typecast for how they look, but hey, make me feel something for you as this group of, of the most evil people in human history. What happens when, like, all of that capital, like the filmmaking capital of making something great, is deployed in the portrayal of terrible people? That tension of, like, of appreciating a well-made film depicting something so horrible is a thing I thought about for the entire two and a half hours. The performances were great. The story was tragic. The production value was amazing. This is four and a half birthday cakes. This is an important film to see. I don't ever want to see it again. I remember seeing this film in the theaters and feeling like 
I didn't ever want to see it again. And I think seeing it now, it meant something really different to me because I think that like a lot of Americans, I am waking up to the fact that this is not, like John says, like something that will be a unique moment in history. Like it's something that we must be vigilant against at all times. And I think that um, the idea of setting out to make a film that depicts what this film depicts is filmmaking on hard mode. And to do it at this level in a way that never apologizes once for what these people did, but also identifies the human frailty in them uh, is amazing. And I think it's a four and a half birthday cake film. And uh, I'm only knocking a half a birthday cake off because I agree, it's tough to watch. And I, uh, I don't yearn to see it again, but I think I should see it again at intervals, you know, every several years or whatever, just to, just as the, as the like necessary reminder of, of, of the thing that is present in the world that can give rise to this kind of thing. Yeah. I, I saw this movie in the theater too, and watching it again was reminded that this is a movie you have to see multiple times. I mean, how many times have I freaking seen Harold and Maude? <laughs> I should have seen this movie more than once, and I'm grateful that I have. Yeah, for all the reasons that you guys say, it's required viewing, but it's not a bitter pill. Like, you sit and fucking watch it. You know, it's an important movie. There's a there's a book, a small book, called The Meaning of Hitler. It's a it's thin book, deceptively thin. Um, it was written in Germany in the 70s by a journalist a, a, a named Sebastian Hoffner. Uh, an important book to read because it's not the whole story of Hitler. It's not the whole story of the Third Reich. It's just this journalist talking about Hitler in a in a um, an accessible way, but really psych- a psychological portrait. And it's the kind of book that I'll read it, and for a year, I'll I'll be able to keep those thoughts in mind, and eventually they dissipate. And then it's time to read it again. It doesn't take long. You need to kind of re-up your understanding of things like this. And this is a movie like that. And the only way, I, the only reason I ding it anything is just that it's two and a half hours long. And that makes it hard on the body because there's, you, you have so much emotion coursing through so much adrenaline in your body for two and a half hours. It, it, it um, it is, it's a physical endurance as well. But I would only ding it. I'm going to ding it the amount off the top of a birthday cake that an inconsiderate dad takes with his finger as he's putting the candles on and he just takes a big bunch of frosting off the corner. I'm going to give it 4.8 birthday cakes. 20 per, point point two of like a frosting corner that got damaged for being two and a half hours long. Big scores. It's a lot of cake. 
One last thing we have to do with every war film is uh, select a guy. Sees this uh, this task <laughs> seems to be getting more difficult <laughs> as we go on. Uh, the the initial idea for the selection of a guy was to was to find someone that maybe embodied our own our own character in its time, or someone we were rooting for in some way. Uh, it's the Rickles of the film. Yeah. Sometimes. Uh, but maybe maybe our choices will be made a little differently for Downfall. Ben, who in Downfall is your guy? Early in the film, we get the scene where they uh, they bring the the final five ladies that have auditioned for uh, for the spot as Hitler's number one secretary. They bring them into the into the kind of ante room, and uh, Hitler's feeding his dog, so they have to wait and. One of them asks, like, what's the, like, protocol for addressing him? What do we, what do we call him? And uh, the, the SS guy that's, uh, that's brought them in there is, uh, explains that uh, he will always speak to you first. And when you reply, say, Heil mein Fuhrer. And the first girl that meets Hitler, Margaret Lorenz, is my guy because she totally overinterprets how much Heil mein Fuhrer you have to do. That was, was so Ben. I, uh, I want to... Just a people pleaser. Yeah, he's just like, yes, mein Fuhrer. Of course, mein Fuhrer. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, uh, she she doesn't get the job because she's trying to hew too closely to the rules, you know? Uh, and uh, So for that reason, Margaret Lorenz is my guy. Good guy, Ben. Good reason. How about you, John? Albert Speer is a is a guy I would I w- would spend a lifetime trying to figure out, but he's not my guy. My guy is one armed dad. <laughs> was he one armed grandpa? No, I think he was dad. You know, I think that I, I thought about that too. But he, everybody looks older in a in a war like this. You know, Hitler was only fifty six. A lot of city miles on Hitler, though. Yeah, that's true. A lot of a lot of amphetamines and stuff. But this guy had his arm blown off at some point. It might have been in the first war. It might have been earlier in this war. Are you guy who tucks the sleeve into the pocket guy, or are you guy who rolls up the sleeve and and pins it? I don't like either thing. I'm not definitely not going to tuck it into the pocket. Yeah, I don't like that look. But I don't like a I don't like a pinned thing either. Yeah, I feel like I'm. I'm artificial hand guy, but this is in the <laughs> this is in a time when artificial hands were. I was gonna say you're definitely artificial hand guy. Yeah, I mean, not hook guy. No, I think you really need to check your having both hands privilege, John. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm making I'm a bunch definitely of in- judgments on a pretty tricky choice. That I'm I am. There one you go, of those- being limb signaling. Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Save it, Ben. I have long thought about. Uh, what it would be like to be missing a limb. I'm not one of those people that has fetishized it to the point of actually wanting to go cut off my arm because I feel like it's alien to my mm-hmm. body. Yeah. Have but you I, done that on Omnibus? Oh, uh, As no, a thing? I haven't. As no, a... I haven't. That's a good idea. Yeah, there you good go. Good suggestion. But I definitely have spent many, many, many uh, hours wondering how exactly I would wear my pants or shirts if I were missing below the elbow above the elbow below the knee above the knee so it's not like i haven't already customized my wardrobe <laughs> no i think i would have i think i would have creepy wooden hand before i would have hook anyway 
<laughs> he's my guy because he goes out there and there are a bunch of kids fighting, you know, with an anti-tank gun. And in the midst of all this battle, dust raining down, Russians on the edge of town, he finds two minutes of time to lecture a group of kids, a group of like 10 year olds, including his son and embarrass the shit out of his son in front of everyone by telling them to stop fighting and go home and survive the war. And it was just like such a me moment. <laughs> you think you, <laughs> you think, you know, suffering, you think, you know, killing, you don't know killing. I don't need this shit. I am reality. He slowly rolls <laughs> up his sleeve and he's like, check this out. Check this out. You know where I lost this? At a butcher shop when I was 15, but that doesn't matter. That's not what I'm talking about. The only reason that I would question whether this was my guy is that he ended up getting hung by that, that fucking low life Bavarian dude, which would not have happened to me. Thank you. <laughs> but that scene definitely, definitely they're shaking my sleeve at those kids. That was my guy. God, that was a great guy. Who was your guy, Adam? There's a scene where uh, where Trottle has overslept, and uh, and she's late for work, so she's running through the bunker, and and things at this point in time have become especially bleak. People are openly talking to one another about the best way to kill themselves, and she's looking left, and she's seeing one conversation, and she's looking right, and she's seeing another. When she looks right, she sees a uh, a German officer commiserating with a young lady and both of these people are unmarried and the German officer is holding a knife to his own wrist and he's clearly teaching her the best way in which to slit your wrists and it made me think of all the dates I'd ever been on where I was just blathering on about something that the girl couldn't possibly care about at any point <laughs> like like there is no way she wants to talk about this she's recoiling from the conversation and he's like no really like this is how you want to do it you were you it was you explaining the difference between an F14 and an right. F15 to some poor girl in a bar yeah like a captive audience who just does not want to be there well, and especially like how to kill yourself. That's like such a like dude bro on a date move. Like he read the room, but he did not read the girl <laughs> and her willingness to have this conversation. Like what may have been appropriate for the room was not appropriate for him. And for that reason, he's my guy. What do we have coming up on the next feel good episode of Friendly Fire? Now, Ben, are we at a state uh, where we have watched our three World War II movies in a row and now we have to if we get a World War II movie we have to push yeah so we have uh, I believe this is the just the second time that this is oh the, no the third time this has happened in the history of we've our we've reached show, a limit where we uh, came up against the hard three World War II films in a row limit so is it always has it always been World War II it is all yeah because our list is currently 152 titles and fully 72 of those are World War II films. So, yeah. uh, so I have organized the list uh, to where we have 80 non-World War II films uh, and they have been randomized. So if you want to roll that crazy hundred-sided. Here we go. Here's our hundred-sided die. It's really hard to roll this die. Because it just wants to keep rolling. Okay, here it goes. Whoa. 
Boy, it really wobbles. It won't stop wobbling. (laughs) Whoa, number one. Ooh. Shit, dog. We got a banger. 1985 samurai film directed by Akira Kurosawa. It is Ran. Awesome. Wow. Kurosawa, one of my... uh, Oh, my big fave directors. And uh, this is a film of his that I have not seen, so I'm pretty exciting, excited to uh, to see it. It's it's uh, King Lear with Samurai. Excellent. Excellent choice. Well, gentlemen, that'll be next week. Uh, nice little, uh, little granita, little palate cleanser after all of this <laughs> Hitler shit. Although I'm not sure whether we're really going to find that to be true at the end of watching that movie. <laughs> My sense is there's an awful lot of blood splatter. Uh, yeah, that's true. Slightly uh, more operatic and less a way of grappling with something. I'm going to guess that there are fewer parents poisoning children to death. <laughs> I don't know. Two hours, 42 minutes. Yeah. So uh, buckle up. Hold on to your Try to watch butts. this one before midnight, John. <laughs> okay. That would be my recommendation. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, all right, gentlemen. I look forward to, uh, to that hang next week. In the meantime, we'll leave it with Rob. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and Sean Roderick. And it's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music War is by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art, it's by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to follow the guys on Twitter, you can reach Adam at Cut for Time, Ben at Benjamin AHR, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when tweeting about the show. We've got a Facebook group and a subreddit where you can discuss with other fans of Friendly Fire. And if you'd like to support the show even further, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.